0: Lord, you're big, and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Two weeks ago, um, Twitter exploded twice in the same week in anger against an 84-year-old pastor. Uh, Some of you might know the name Eugene Peterson. Um, He's written many really helpful books on Christian life and ministry. One of them is The Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He's probably most famous for his paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. Um, And he is stepping out of the public eye, retiring from ministry. And uh, he was granting what was sort of going to be one last interview or one of his last interviews. And in that interview, he was asked this question. If you were pastoring today... And a gay couple in your church who were Christians of good faith asked you to perform their same-sex wedding ceremony. Is that something you would do? And Peterson responded with a simple yes. So half of Christian Twitter freaked out. The other half was happy. Major Christian bookstores threatened to pull the message and pull all of his books if he didn't recant. And then the next day, Eugene Peterson issued a statement. And he said, quote, When put on the spot by this particular interviewer, I said yes in the moment, but on further reflection and prayer, I would like to retract that. That's not something I would do out of respect to the congregation, the larger church body, and the historic biblical Christian view and teaching on marriage. So now the other half of Christian Twitter was distraught, um, and everybody was left wondering did he really mean the first statement he made? Or was he just retracting now because of the backlash that he got when he made that first statement? In any case, here's a man with a wealth of pastoral knowledge and wisdom. A man with such a command of the Bible that he could go from the Greek to his own words all the way cover to cover in the Hebrew. Um, Smarter than most of us in this room. But yet he, at the end of his life and ministry, is experiencing confusion regarding this issue. He was asked a direct question. He answered it, he had a week to retract before it was published, didn't retract, but then once the uproar happened, that's when he retracted. So, if Eugene Peterson can be confused about this, it would be a shock if nobody here were as confused about it this morning. Some of you must be, and for many of you, you have sincere reasons to be confused. It's not just that you're trying to take an easy way out of issues or trying to be wishy-washy. You're just hearing so many voices on the issue. And you don't know what to think about it. Um, And I get it right now, actually, that I'm speaking as if it's a luxury for all of us to think about this issue as if it's theoretical, as if it's academic, as if um, it doesn't touch us in our here and now. But for many of you, I'm aware that this is an issue that touches how you're going to use your own body, what you're going to do with your own life. And so many of you are wrestling. What we feel like our role is, as the church, is not to make up your mind for you, but we believe that the church's role is to offer tools as you wrestle with this issue. One of the tools that we think we can offer is a positive biblical theology of sexuality. Many of you have been in churches at some point and heard this talked about, homosexuality talked about, and you've you've heard it talked about in negative terms. Anytime you've heard sex talked about, In church, it's been in negative terms, which you can't do. But some of us haven't heard a positive biblical theology of sexuality and what God actually intended it for. And we believe that that is maybe the most important tool that we can offer as a church. And so that's what we're here to do today. Um, Two caveats before we begin. One, we're not going to just cherry-pick texts from the Bible on homosexuality as if the Bible is a homosexuality and sexuality textbook and you just need to find the right chapter and verse, and then you know what to do. The Bible is first and foremost not a sexuality textbook. It's first and foremost a story about what God has done in Jesus Christ to reconcile humans to himself. And so when we talk about homosexuality or any other ethical issue, we need to talk about it in light of God's grand story from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, and then see how an issue like homosexuality fits or doesn't fit with that. Second caveat, some of you, this is your first time here with us, and uh, you may be thinking right now, this is why I don't go to church. All these Christians are always just harping on homosexuality, and they don't deal with their own in-house issues, right? And there may be some valid criticism in that, Um, but we did want to let you know, we haven't preached on this in years, actually, from the pulpit at this particular church, and one of the reasons for that is that we don't believe it's one of the major messages of the Bible, but we do believe it is in the Bible, and when the Bible speaks about it, it is clear. So as we're doing this series this year and addressing six different social issues, this is one that we wanted to help you be equipped to think biblically on. So be four parts to today's message that reflect the four components, not of the story of sexuality in the Bible, but of the story of the whole Bible as a whole. So we'll look at God, humans, sin, and gospel. There's an outline in your bulletin that can help you follow along. So, uh, text your questions in as we go. Let's jump in. First, we're talking about God. And we want to say that God is other-oriented. God is other-oriented. Here's what I mean. Christians throughout the centuries have looked to the Scriptures and seen there that the God of the Bible is a trinity. He is three persons in one nature. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Yet, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And, God would not be God without the Father, God would not be God without the Son, and God would not be God without the Spirit. Then, over all of those truths that we see in Scripture, we see a summary statement, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's mind-blowing, but that's the Trinity. And since God is a Trinity— that means that there is unity in diversity within himself. There's unity in diversity within himself. He's other-oriented in nature. He, within himself, is a differentiated unity, not a uniformity. What I mean by that is that within the Trinity, there's not only sameness, there's also difference. The Son is something other than the Father. The Father is something other than the Spirit. The Spirit is something other than the Son. Yet together Father, Son, and Spirit don't make up three gods, they make up one God. What that means is that even when there was nothing else in existence, even when it was only God, God never lived without being other oriented. The Father was always oriented toward the Son and the Spirit. The Son was always oriented toward the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit was always oriented toward the Father and the Son in perfect love. And that's the God that Christians believe in. It's different from a God like Allah, for example, whom Muslims claim has no diversity or differentiation within himself. And that's why you won't often hear Muslims claiming that Allah is love, right? Right? Because how could he be if he was living for eternity past without anyone in existence to love? Either he was empty and discontent before he created humans, right? Which would make him a puny God. Or he was happy for all that time without anyone to love, which means that love can't be an essential part of his nature. But the triune God of the Christian can claim to be love, can claim to be oriented to the other, because love and other orientation exist within the Trinity, within himself. And so the story of the creation of human beings is fundamentally different for the Christian than for any other group of people in other faith traditions. For the Christian, we believe in a God who already was love for eternity past. He already was other-oriented and perfectly content. And then He chose to extend that love that already existed within himself to others whom he created. And so when we read Genesis 1, we don't believe that God's attributes, his character traits, appeared out of thin air there. The love and affection and goodness he showed to humankind are the same love and affection and goodness that he was already showing within the Trinity, each person to the other. He made people qualitatively different from him. We can't be perfect, for example. None of us will be omniscient or omnipotent or omnipresent. But he made us able to be very much like him in some other ways. He made us able to imitate his goodness, his wisdom, his mercy, even his love. And it brought him great delight to enter into a relationship with those first humans whom he made in his image. And that relationship itself was another instance of differentiated unity, a unity in diversity. Here's what I mean by that. Adam and Eve were different enough from God that they could be said to be something other than him. They were not a God. They were another sort of being. But they were similar enough to God in their creative capacity and communicative capacity at least that it's possible for us to have an intimate and truly loving relationship with the God who created us. So, on this first point, what we've seen is that before and after creating humans... God was an other oriented God and is an other oriented God. And I think once we've established that, his design for human marriage maybe seems a little less arbitrary. Let's go there now to human marriage. We've seen that our God is an other oriented God, and we see in the Bible that God created human marriage to be other oriented. God created human marriage to be other oriented. Let me lay down some building blocks for that statement that I just made. It starts in Genesis 1 when God chooses not to make generic human beings, but to make male human beings and female human beings. Here's what it says in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Do you ever think about why God did it that way? God made plenty of creatures who could reproduce asexually. Uh, so why did he not make us like them? Why did he make humans male and female? Was it incidental that we happened to be among the species that he made that way? I don't think it can be incidental. Because when Jesus comments on marriage in Matthew 19 he seems to think it's very foundational. This is the first place he goes, actually. Jesus is back to establishing that God didn't create undifferentiated humanity, but male humans and female humans. Take a look at what happened here. So Pharisees come to him. They ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And it's just so interesting how Jesus starts his response. He lays down the foundation by saying, haven't you read? So this is something they should have already known. And then he goes into Genesis 1 and 2. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And so that's the foundation Jesus lays right off the bat that there are male humans and female humans. And then he starts to trace the argument for Genesis 2. He quotes again, Genesis 2, for this reason, the reason that Adam and Eve were male and female and Eve was made from Adam, for this reason, a man generally, not just Adam and Eve, but a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's huge for us because Jesus is reading Genesis 1 and 2 as prescriptive for future marriages beyond Adam and Eve. He sees that there's a male and female that have to be involved and a man has to leave his father and mother to be united to a wife. And so because Jesus wants us to read the Adam and Eve marriage as a paradigm, we need to pay attention to that. And he also thinks that the Pharisees should have seen it. Because he starts out, haven't you read? In other words, if you would have known your Genesis 1 and 2, you should have known already how marriage should have worked, he says to the Pharisees. We still haven't answered the question of why would God do it this way? Why does God care so much about marriage involving a male and a female? I think we see hints in the Old Testament and clearly in the New Testament that other-oriented intergendered marriage was God's plan to paint a picture to the world of a more ultimate reality. I'll say that again because that's a really important statement that I'm making. Other-oriented intergendered marriage was God's plan to paint a picture to the world of a more ultimate reality. And the more ultimate reality that he's painting the picture to is his other orientation in his relationship to his people. In other words, the horizontal was meant to be a parable of the vertical, if that makes sense. Let me explain it a little bit more by showing you uh, in the Old Testament first. In the Old Testament, God uses this language. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your Builder, capital B, marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God Rejoice over you. This is just one of many times in the Old Testament in which God refers to his relationship with his special people as a relationship between a husband and a wife. And then in the New Testament, it becomes even more clear, especially uh, when Paul is talking in Ephesians 5. Paul has been talking in Ephesians 5 about human marriage. He's been talking about how a wife should submit to her husband as, she, as the church submits to Christ, then he's talking about how a husband should lay down his life for his wife the way Christ laid down his life for the church. And he's like, I'm making some bold claims here. What, do I, what basis do I have to do that? What's the deep logic underlying all of this? And then he makes this profound statement. And it starts with the quote we've already seen from Genesis 2. He says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2. And then what does Paul say about it? This is a profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ in the church. When the New Testament uses the word mystery, it's almost always, maybe always, something that is now known. Something that once was hidden, but now has been revealed. So what is Paul unveiling here? What's being revealed in these last days that we're living in? What's being revealed is that human marriage was never meant to be an entity that stands alone by itself. Human marriage on the horizontal level among humans was always meant to be a parable, a picture, a painting to the world of a vertical reality between God, specifically Christ, and his relationship with his people, specifically the church. In order for the parable to work, though, it requires one man and one woman because they're different in some fundamental ways. That reflects how God is different from his people in some fundamental ways. It requires them coming together in an exclusive relationship because God and his people are God toward his people shows an exclusive particular love that he doesn't show outside of that. And in that painting, in that picture, God so loved the world that he wanted the whole world to have a visible picture of the invisible reality that some of them would otherwise never see. He wanted the world to be able to look at a human marriage and gain a deeper understanding of the invisible love that he has for his people. I want to address one objection that many of you are probably wondering. You might be thinking, well, gender diversity is only one type of diversity. So, if you're saying that God would want differentiation, differentiated unity in marriage, why could not two gay men who are very different from each other fulfill that same plan, that same parable from God's perspective, right? Imagine maybe you had an introverted man and an extroverted man. They're from different ethnicities and different social classes. They have different likes and dislikes. They're very different from one another in many ways, even though they happen to have the same body parts. Couldn't that fulfill the differentiated unity picture that God wants to show in marriage? And it's an important question, and I think we have to go back to Adam and Eve and think it through surely Adam and Eve were different from each other in ways other than their gender, right? Maybe one of them was an introvert and one of them was an extrovert. Maybe one of them liked plums and the other preferred cherries. Maybe one of them had darker skin and the other had more olive-toned skin. We don't know, but they surely were different in ways other than their anatomy. Um, But God could have said, For this reason, because of Adam and Eve, an introvert leaves his mother and father and clings to an extrovert, right? Or someone with one skin tone leaves his or her mother and father and clings to someone with another skin tone, but he doesn't say any of that. He says, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. He notes the fundamental difference of gender. In Adam and Eve's marriage and says that that's the thing that needs to be present in every human marriage, that every human marriage needs to be represented by both sexes. And we can conjecture reasons why God would see this as fitting for humanity. Peter talks in 1 Peter about how in general men are physically stronger than their wives and so We can conjecture that maybe that's part of why God saw this as a fitting design, that a husband would lay down his life for his wife from a position of relative strength, just like Christ laid down his life for the church from a position of relative strength. We can imagine that maybe God wanted every human to have a built-in intimate connection with both genders of humanity by having a mother and father in their home. We could imagine, um, but to get too deep into those imaginings or going further than what The Bible explicitly spells out the bottom line is that the picture of Christ in the church that God wanted on display is a picture that requires unity in diversity, not uniformity. And from the beginning, God denoted gender difference as the way he wanted that diversity to be represented in marriage. So we've made the case that God is other-oriented, we've made the case that human marriage was meant to be other-oriented, but of course, like any other of God's good gifts, we distort it. And so now we're going to look at sin and say that sin is fundamentally an inward turn toward self-orientation. Sin is fundamentally not other-centered, it's an inward turn toward self-orientation. Let me get at this point by first starting with a historical perspective on sexuality. So, you probably know that people have been in same-sex relationships for a long time. It's not a new thing that started in the last 50 years. The ancients wrote about it frequently. And along the way, as long as people have been writing about this and recording their thoughts on it, many men have claimed to have gotten more pleasure from men than from women. Okay, So in ancient Rome, many wealthy men had a wife for childbearing and they had a man on the side for pleasure. The logic behind it is who knows what brings pleasure to a man better than another man. So if we were thinking to ourselves, thinking only of ourselves, and all societal taboos were lifted and God had nothing to say otherwise on the matter, many of us would choose some of the benefits of a same-sex relationship After all, someone who is just like you doesn't have to overcome such a learning curve to understand what it is that you will enjoy. Of course, we've seen one reason why this is off-limits for a Christian. The same-sex relationship is a different parable than a parable of God's love for his people. At best, it's a parable of God keeping his love for himself. And God could have kept his love for himself. Lord knows that us human beings haven't loved him as well as he was being loved within the Trinity for eternity past. But friends, that's why the gospel's so shocking, is it not? Because God didn't keep his love to himself, though he could have. He would have had every right to. He chose not to keep his love within the Trinity with other persons who would understand him perfectly and love him perfectly. He chose to extend his love to others, to those who are different from him, to those uh, who wouldn't love him back the same way, and he chose to love them through that difference. This isn't just a sexual dynamic, it's relational too. Women for eternity have said, uh, lamented that men don't understand us, right? It's so much easier to communicate and get empathy from other women. Can I get an amen from any women? Uh, and vice versa is true, too. Men and women, we all enjoy being with people who are like us, who will validate us, right? Um, the other gender has a way of not thinking our sin issues are so endearing, or at least as endearing as we think they are. They tend to call us out and get under our skin, right? So when I, when I tell my best man in my wedding, man, I wish we could just stay up all night one more time and play video games all night like we did back in the day. What he does is he pulls out his phone and starts Googling second-hand video game consoles, right? When I say the same thing to my wife, she reminds me that there's dishes in the sink and trash that needs to go out, right? In some ways, wouldn't it be easier if we didn't need the other sex? If we could just turn inward on our own gender instead of doing the hard work of orienting toward the other? That's something like how Paul explains same-sex sexual activity in Romans 1. Here's the argument. You've probably read it before in verses 25 through 27. I just want to note a couple of things here. In verse 25, Paul gives us a diagnosis of what all sin is at its core. He says, They, that's all humans, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who's forever praised. At its core... All sin is fundamentally an exchange, worshiping something else, something created instead of God, putting something else in God's place. So first and foremost, all sin is a vertical issue. We have put something else on God's throne. It's idolatry, we call it. It's critical for our discussion today of how Paul understands homosexual practice to fit into this in, and flow from it. And again, he's not talking about homosexual orientation. He's not talking about homosexual identity. You'll notice here that he's talking specifically about practice. And in verse 26, he gets into it by saying, because of this. In other words, because of the vertical break that took place between us and God in verse 25, because we put things on God's throne in verse 25. Because of this, we have the horizontal disorder that results, okay? And so that's when he gets into God gave them over to shameful lust. That language of Giving over is often used of God's discipline of us. It's the worst thing that God could do from our perspective is to give us over to our sin. It means that he stops restraining us from the consequences that will naturally come from going our own way and sinning against him. And here, the specifics are that we made the wrong choice on the vertical plane, and so God's saying, okay, well then I'm going to give you over to what's naturally going to happen which is that you're going to make the wrong choices now on the horizontal plane with one another. And so we're seeing here in this text that same-sex behavior is a different sort of parable. It's a parable, all right. It's a different sort of parable of a different sort of reality. Instead of depicting the other-oriented bond between God and his people, it's a vivid depiction of humanity turning in on itself turning in on itself. We started to choose those like us instead of choosing the one who was unlike us in a vertical dimension. And as a result, we started choosing those like us instead of those unlike us in a horizontal dimension. Fundamentally, even though Christians are often looked at as anti-diversity because of our views on this issue and others, fundamentally, when you think about it, Same sex relationships are anti diversity, anti the diversity that God intended to exist in every human marriage. And it reflects a prior decision to love ourselves more than we love God. Now I want to take a moment and address other sex attracted people today, people whose desires are primarily heterosexual. If you're feeling your chest puff up during this sermon, and you're patting yourself on the back. I just want to pause for a moment and say that you're dead wrong and you've missed the point of everything we've been talking about so far. Are you hearing what we've been saying? For the opposite-sex attracted person, our relationships, our close relationships, dating relationships, marriage relationships, are designed by God to be other-oriented For our own pleasure. But in the day-to-day conduct of our lives, how many of us actually live that way? I'll just speak for myself. I know that I have no basis for claiming any sort of moral high ground when it comes to pursuing romantic relationship for selfless ends or other oriented reasons. Every year, as I'm exploring more and more of the dark corners of my heart, I recognize another selfish component of my initial attraction to my wife, Sarah. I'm realizing how much was in, in, in our early days of our relationship, how much of that was wrapped up in what she could do for me. How much of it was wrapped in what status I could gain from being with her. How much of it was wrapped up in what she could validate in me as a man, right? And I become more and more convinced the more I reflect on it that In those early days when I was pursuing her, no matter how much I was saying it was about God and it was about her and it was selfless and I wanted to lay my life down for her, very little of that was actually true the more I get to know what my heart was. I was thoroughly, thoroughly selfish. And I wish I could say that my attitude has changed since I've been married, but my observation of myself is that it's largely continued in the same pattern. I catch myself annoyed that she wants to talk about feelings more than I do. I catch myself getting frustrated that she doesn't want to watch war movies with me. I catch myself irritated that she's got these different hormones that I don't understand, right? Some of the differences we have probably don't have much to do with gender. I get that. But gender is a factor in at least some of those differences that we have. And if my attitude is constantly, I wish my wife would be more like me, then am I really staying clear of the sin talked about here in Romans 1 just because I happen to be attracted to the opposite sex? I don't think so. If you're like me, at all, opposite-sex attracted person this morning, and you are, the takeaway this morning isn't to walk out of here with our heads held high, patting ourselves on the back for being attracted to people of the opposite sex. The takeaway is to see ourselves as the fellow adulterers who are dropping our rocks that we are holding in our hands as we hear the voice of Jesus. The takeaway is to repent of our selfishness in our own relationships and to go and sin no more. Now, someone perceptive here this morning is asking the question, how can I go and sin no more? I can't do that. Maybe it's the same-sex attracted person, maybe it's an other-sex attracted person who's feeling convicted, but you say, no, I'm stuck in my sin. Even if I wanted to be different, I could not stop doing what I'm doing. And that's why this last point is so important, the gospel. The gospel frees us to be other-oriented again. The gospel frees us to be other-oriented again. Now, I'm not claiming that the gospel is equivalent to freedom to be other oriented now the gospel is the good news of what god done in Je- did in jesus to bring us back to him again through jesus voluntarily taking our sin on himself and taking the punishment that we deserved in our place so that we didn't have to suffer that punishment but when i'm saying the gospel frees us to be other oriented again i'm saying that that good news has the effect of giving us this sort of freedom To go to the other orientation that we were originally designed for. And the reason that the gospel is able to free us from the bondage of self orientation, the curving inward that we do, is the same reason that the gospel is able to free us from greed and jealousy and hatred and unforgiveness and any other sin. It's because Jesus didn't die to free us from the effects of our sin only. He died to free us from our sin itself. The gospel isn't good news. You can keep on living how you were living without any fear of punishment because Jesus took the punishment. The gospel is good news. You can stop living how you were living and live an entirely new way because the Holy Spirit wants to give you a new heart on the basis of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, on the basis of Jesus' death on our behalf, we can be other-oriented the way it was originally intended. Now someone's asking, as you should be, preacher, are you saying that a gay person who becomes a Christian will immediately experience change in their desires and an orientation toward the opposite sex? And the answer to that is a resounding no. Resounding no. God never promises he'll get same-sex attracted Christian desires for any member of the opposite sex. God's promise is that he'll give the same-sex attracted Christian the freedom to say no to those desires. His promise is that he'll give the same-sex attracted Christian freedom to orient his or her life toward God, and the more he or she does so, those desires will lose their hold, their grip, their rulership that they once had on that person's life. And if the same-sex attracted Christian never ends up having desires for the opposite sex, God promises the freedom to overcome the temptation to lust, the temptation to fornicate, just as he does for those of us whose desires are mainly for the opposite sex. So we've done a little whirlwind kind of tour today. And our big idea that we've seen is this. Intergendered marriage is a God ordained picture of his other oriented love for us. I used three hyphenated words in that sentence, so I'm going to go back through it again slowly. Intergendered marriage, that's marriage that involves a male and a female, is a God ordained picture, or we've used the word parable today, of his other oriented love for us. And we've only scratched the surface today, that's all we've had time to do. Um, on this issue. I had four other sermons I wanted to preach on this that I had to keep on the shelf in order to preach this one because there's just so much rich beauty in God's design for sexuality. What we've done today doesn't answer all the questions, it doesn't clear up all the confusion, it doesn't eliminate all the mystery. If Eugene Peterson could be confused, then people will still be confused after we spend 35 minutes talking about this. But I want to encourage you to look deeper into this if you are feeling confusion. Confusion. We've put a list of resources on the back of your bulletin insert. It has resources on both sides, because you should read the other perspective that goes against what I'm saying here today. Um, On the tables out in the lobby at the well are 100 copies of a short, short book written by a celibate, same-sex attracted Anglican priest who um, lays out in a little bit more detail the perspective that we've presented here today. So you take one of those per family at the well on, in the lobby on your way out. But friends, this morning, this morning hasn't been about trying to make sure we have airtight arguments. This morning, the scriptures we've looked at aren't about trying to make sure that we say the right things to people when we are asked about our views on this. This morning is primarily about what God wants to do in your heart and mine. All of us are far from hitting the mark on the other-oriented love that he has called us to and exhibited to us. And after singing a song, we're going to come to the communion table. And at that communion table is where we're going to celebrate the good news, though. The good news that at the height of our horizontal selfishness and at the height of our vertical enmity toward God, that same God moved toward us all, whether we're gay, or straight, or otherwise. That God moved toward us all and made a way for us to be reconciled to him. Let's pray. God,